Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. This lesson was previously recorded by Michelle in front of a live audience. Well, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, had not always gone by that name. When we first meet him in the book of Acts, he was called Saul, and he was a rising star in Judaism around the time of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. At that time, he worked for the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem as one of their chief persecutors of those who followed Jesus. However, one day while Saul was on his way to Damascus to hunt down Christ followers in that city, he had a miraculous encounter with the risen Lord. Jesus appeared to Saul on the road and spoke to him. And as a result of that meeting, he became a follower of Christ for the rest of his life. Saul's encounter with the risen Christ marked a turning point, not only in his own life, but in the history of the early church as well. Up until this time, the gospel had primarily been shared among the Jewish people with one or two exceptions, but God had purposely chosen Saul to carry the good news about Christ to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people of the world. And this was made very plain to him in Acts chapter 9 verse 15, when God said to Saul, that he was his chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Accordingly, Saul changed his name to Paul, which was the Gentile version of his name. And not only did he go on to minister across the Roman Empire of the time, but he was also used by God to write much of the New Testament. The 13 books of the New Testament that he wrote took the form of letters sent to various different churches, groups, and individuals within the Roman Empire. And we'll be looking at three of them over the course of the study in the coming weeks. Specifically, we're going to be studying Galatians, Philippians, and Colossians. Paul's connection to each group of recipients was different. Galatia was a region which included several churches that Paul had established on his first missionary journey. So this letter then would have been read by all of those churches in cities like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. These were very special churches to Paul. According to Galatians chapter 4, he considered himself to be their spiritual father, reminding them that he had been the one to first preach the gospel to them. Now, of course, when we look at the book of Philippians in a few weeks, we're going to learn that Paul had a strong connection to the believers there also. Philippi was a city in Macedonia, and it was a Roman colony of some importance. Paul had gone there with Silas and Timothy on his second missionary journey. 
and he'd gone in response to a vision he'd received while praying for God's direction. Now, many of you might be familiar with the stories of Lydia, their first convert in that city, and also the Philippian jailer who received Christ when Paul and Silas were his prisoners. We'll see later that Paul had a very close and caring relationship with this group of believers at Philippi. Now, the church at Colossae was quite unique. According to what Paul says in the letter, he'd actually never been to that city. However, he had heard of them, and being ever eager to establish people in the faith, he wrote to them. And he also said to his letter, in his letter to the Colossians, that he hoped to visit them one day, though he never apparently did. Nevertheless, his letter to the Colossians is full of pastoral encouragement, and it contains some deep theology about Christ also. Now, as we move through the study, we're going to see that Paul's purpose for writing his specific messages to each of these groups was different. And yet, one theme stands out very clearly in all three of the books, and that is the theme of Christ's supremacy. Because in every letter, in every situation, Paul was encouraging the believers to hold to Christ alone. So let's begin to look at the letter written to the Galatians, but we should probably refresh ourselves a little about who these people were. These were people who had known Paul and spent time with him in the past. And as we saw, many of their churches had been established by his preaching on his first missionary journey. And now, years later, Paul writes to them with a sense of urgency because false teachers had come among them, and he knew it was vital to quickly correct their error. We've seen that in those early days of the church, most of the first believers had been Jews like Paul, but as the Gentiles began to come to faith in Christ, disagreements arose. Some of the Jewish-born Christians began to insist that people really needed to become Jewish first before becoming Christ followers. They fell into the mistaken belief that we are not saved by faith in Christ alone, but by also meticulously obeying the Jewish laws and regulations that Christ had in fact fulfilled. They were particularly focused on obeying the food laws and on the need for Gentiles to be circumcised. Now, many of these Judaizers, as they were called, boldly and maliciously attacked both Paul's character and his teachings. They implied that Paul really couldn't be trusted to be a genuine believer because he had persecuted the Christ followers in his early years. They also insisted that he wasn't a real disciple of Christ because he hadn't been present with the Lord before his crucifixion as all the other disciples had been. And in addition to that, he hadn't been sent out by the church in Jerusalem as many of the other disciples had been, and therefore these Jews 
Judaizers said that he was not a true apostle. To their minds, Paul was a fraud and his ideas about the gospel could not be trusted. The real danger, though, of these false teachers was that they had a different message about salvation. The essence of their message was that Christ's death was not enough to reconcile us to God the Father, and that the law of Moses had to be kept as well. Paul's urgent mission then in writing his letter to those who he had led to Christ was to address the false teaching that had crept into their churches. The Galatian believers needed to understand that salvation was, is, and always will be by faith in Christ alone, and that nothing need be added to the completed work of Christ on the cross in order for a person to be saved. So to accomplish this, he first had to confirm that he had his own authority to preach the message that the Lord had given him. So let's begin in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, Paul, an apostle, sent out not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. So from his opening greeting, Paul clearly states that he is indeed sent out by God. In other words, he is an apostle. What his rivals had said was in fact true, that he'd not received any human's permission to preach the message of Christ. He was sent out, do you see in the text, not from men nor by a man, but rather by God himself. That is always God's calling and gifting. That is something that comes from the Lord himself. He's the one who calls us into service, and truly he is the one who will equip us for it too. You see, there is but one requirement for a life that is useful to God, and it is that we spend time in Christ's presence. The same can be said of us too. If we are willing to spend time with Christ and meditate on his word, he will use us in ways that we could never have imagined or expected. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all going to be called like Paul to travel to the far-flung corners of the earth to preach the gospel, but we are all called to share the good news with someone, whether it's our family members or perhaps our neighbor next door. Paul's work was given to him by the Lord, and that gave him great confidence, and it should give us confidence too, because the same call is on our lives. Paul then greets his readers in verses 3 through 5, saying, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's first wish for them then was that they would know grace. In other words, that they would experience the unmerited favor of God in their lives, because he knew that as they experienced that grace, they would then finally know the peace of God that only comes because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. You see, in this new relationship of favor and peace with God, 
We find a life we could never have imagined, and it is only possible because of Christ's death on the cross. His blood shed there paid the penalty for my sin and for yours. And as we ask that Christ's blood pay our debt to God and that all of our sin be washed away, we are rescued from death. Simply put, Paul says in verse 4 that Christ gave himself to rescue us. And that really is the message of the gospel, that Christ died for us so that we might receive the life of God and every blessing that comes with that. Everything is found in Christ alone. And then Paul gets to his point. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul knew that there was nothing that a person could do to earn God's favor and that the true gospel, the one that Paul preached, is a gospel of grace, one of God's undeserved favor. And Paul was astounded that those he had led to the Lord were abandoning that truth and turning to a different gospel, which, as he says, is really no gospel at all. And the way he words it here makes it very plain that in doing this, they were actually deserting Christ who had called them. Then Paul gets even more serious in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. There is only one message of good news according to the scripture. Paul states that anyone who twists it to preach that Christ's sacrifice is somehow not enough to save us, they will be doubly accursed because God is not mocked and he will hold people to account. One of the false teacher's arguments was that Paul was making salvation far too easy with his insistence on grace. But then they went on further and claimed that he was making reconciliation with God seem easy because he wanted to be popular. They said he wanted people to love him. And really, there could have been nothing further from the truth. Look at what he says in verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, the first thing we see here is that Paul knew he couldn't serve two masters. For if God's messenger is always trying to please people and win their approval, they will not be a true servant of Christ. But secondly, I think here we see a little bit of sarcasm almost. Paul says, in essence, so you think I want the approval of men. You think I'm going through everything that I'm going through just because I want to be popular. How does saying what I just said win me any friends or make my life easier? 
You see, Paul was never a people pleaser, and he had the marks on his body to prove that. His only goal was to please the Lord. Paul wants to keep the focus on the gospel, though, and on his authority to preach it. So he goes on, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So the message that he preached was not one that he'd got secondhand from someone else. In fact, it was not of human origin at all, for he had received it directly from Jesus who had revealed it to him. Rather than ignoring or excusing the kind of life that he lived before he trusted Christ, Paul actually highlights what he once was as being proof that he had truly been transformed by God. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. You see, previously, Paul had been a fanatic. Whatever the law of Moses required, he did. He had passionately tried to earn God's favor through his own self-effort. And he'd not only been extremely zealous for the traditions of his Jewish ancestors, but he'd been determined to crush all the followers of Christ into the ground. He had wanted to eradicate them, and yet... Now he was willing to die if need be to see that same belief spread across the world. And what had happened had not been random or without purpose. Look at verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult with any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Now, notice here that before Paul had any opportunity to do anything good or bad, while he was still in his mother's womb, he had been set aside by God's grace, by God's unmerited favor. And it was for a reason. God planned to use this unlikely man to be a minister to the Gentiles. Paul was part of God's eternal plan to help people make the bridge between the old ways of Judaism and the new way of trusting in Christ alone. Because this call to preach to the Gentiles had come directly from God himself, Paul says that, do you see in the text, his immediate response was not to consult any human being. Rather, his first response was to leave Damascus, where he'd spent some time after Christ had met him on the road, and go out into the Arabian wilderness. So first, Paul went away 
to be alone, not only to wrestle with the significance of what had happened to him, but also to hear God's voice before he talked with other people. And you know, I find that very challenging because I have to ask, am I quick to do that in my own life? How often when God shows up in an unexpected way, do we run off to talk through what happened with other people rather than spend time with God himself first? Secondly, you see, Paul went back to the church in Damascus. Now, understand that this was a courageous thing for him to do. After all, he'd previously been going to Damascus to wipe out the church, and then God had intervened. Can I say, though, that going back to share the gospel with people who knew us before we came to Christ is often extremely difficult, but it's important nonetheless because those who knew us before will surely be able to see how we've changed. Now, they may not respond to what we say, but the fact that we are not who we once were is a powerful testimony to the saving grace of Christ just the same. Paul went back to show them the transformation that had occurred by the power of the Holy Spirit. He changed not only in what he believed, but also in the way that he lived. Paul continues his story in verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Paul had been walking with the Lord three years before he reached out to the apostle Peter Cephas, by the way, is the Aramaic version of Peter's name. But notice that to do what Paul had to, to do, he had to return to Jerusalem where the early church was centered and where Peter had become one of the leaders. Now that was no small thing because you may remember that Jerusalem was also the headquarters for the Jewish leadership, the very leadership that had commissioned him to destroy the faith that he was now defending. Can you imagine the risk that he took? They would have hated him and been out for his blood. And by the way, there was no guarantee that the Christians would receive him either. After all, how were they to know that his conversion wasn't merely an act in order to help him arrest their leaders? But Paul knew that he had to go back and face his past. And he also knew the value of aligning himself with the other apostles and those recognized as leaders in the early church. But the only way he would have had the strength to do that was by trusting God to guide and to protect him. Finally, after making peace with the disciples, he went on another journey. Verse 21, then I went to Syria and Cilicia, now, that may not seem like much to us, but this was the area around Tarsus where Paul had grown up. 
He went back to his family and to his friends, the people in the synagogue where he had begun his instruction. Can you imagine their reception? They would have thought him mad to give up everything he had as a representative of the Jewish leadership council. Remember, he told us in verse 14 that before accepting Christ as his savior, he had, and I quote, been advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. And he'd given all of that up to wander the desert as a Christ follower. All those who had been jealous of his advancement before must certainly have mocked him now. It's often the hardest to go back to our own families once we've come to know Christ, though, isn't it? Paul persevered, and he explains how when news of his conversion spread, it brought praise to God's name. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Paul wanted his Galatian readers to understand that his message had never come from men, but that it had come from God himself. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who had called him as a special minister to the Gentiles, and he was willing to take that message even to the hardest places to minister. And so what about you? Do you understand that God has a call on your life also? Now, it may not be the same as Paul's, but the Lord has called you to lovingly share the good news about Jesus with others. Of course, that doesn't always mean that they'll respond well. We know for certain that Paul was not always well received, but even so, he was not deterred. And we shouldn't discount the idea of sharing with any particular person or group just because it would be hard to do so. Now, I know that some of us may say, that Paul had an advantage over us. After all, he'd been trained in the things of God from his youth. He already had a framework in his mind that God could use. But remember Peter and John? They were just fishermen, and the Lord used them just as well. God continually chooses to use the unlikely. Why? Because then his grace and his power become truly evident. I saw how this was true in my own life recently. As many of you know, I lost my husband a short while ago after 35 years of marriage. He died very suddenly of cancer, and after he went to be with the Lord, I was distressed. Not only was I mourning his loss, but also I was really afraid of what the future held and how I would manage. Now, in the midst of the worst time of my life, God used a worship song by the Christian artist Matt Maher to really minister to me. The song is called Your Love Defends Me, and it's all about loneliness and the fear of the unknown and how even in times of trial, God's love defends us. He is our refuge and our strength, and even when we feel that we're all alone, he is with us in the fight, and in fact, the war is already won. 
I cannot tell you how many times I played that song again and again, and I can't tell you how much comfort it brought me as God spoke to me through it. Now, recently I was listening to a Christian radio program in which artists were interviewed about their popular songs, and I learned to my very great surprise that Matt Maher had not written that song. It had been written for him by a young woman by the name of Hannah Kerr. What was astounding to me is that she wrote it just after graduating high school, when she was dealing with loneliness and fear and uncertainty as she started out her first year at college. You know, I was delighted when I heard that. You see, even though she was much younger than me, even though she hadn't had the same life experiences, God could still use her words to touch my heart. God uses the most unlikely messengers and all kinds of them so that all the glory goes to him. That was true for Paul, Peter, and John, and others in scripture. And you know what? It's true for you and me also. If we truly seek him and learn to spend time in his presence. You see, in Christ and in Christ alone, we find everything we need life and service. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for what you've said to our hearts tonight. Thank you that it's all about Jesus and that he has done that which we could never do for ourselves. Lord, we thank you for this new life, this transformation that can come as we put our faith in him. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.